Hi, everyone, and welcome to the DCRO Risk Governance Podcast, where we're focusing on risk governance issues, learning about the work of and receiving guidance from experienced board directors, senior executives, and thought leaders on issues that are important for those governing organizations. My guest today is Michelle Gelfan. Michelle is a distinguished university professor of psychology at the University of Maryland and an affiliate of the R.H. Smith School of Business. She leads a diverse group of scholars in the social decision-making and organizational science program of UMD's Department of Psychology. Michelle is considered a pioneering researcher on the concept of tightness and looseness in cultures. She's credited with defining the tightness-looseness classification system, which assesses how much a specific culture adheres to social norms or tolerates deviance. The application of this concept is made across geographic cultures as well as within organizational cultures and has been shown to have profound importance for how organizations can best operate to fulfill their purpose in the areas of negotiation, conflict, revenge, forgiveness, diversity, and more. Her work has been cited over 20,000 times and has been featured in the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Boston Globe, on National Public Radio, The Voice of America, Fox News, NBC News, ABC News, and The Economist, and The Standard, among other outlets. Her most recent book is called Rule Makers, Rule Breakers, How Tight and Loose Cultures Wire the World. Michelle earned her BA in psychology from Colgate University and both her MA and PhD in social organizational psychology from the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Welcome, Michelle. Great to be here. I was first introduced to your work via my favorite podcast, which is called Hidden Brain on NPR, and I was immediately drawn to your way of thinking in areas of inquiry about cultures that are either tight or loose in many ways that that can be interpreted. And I want to introduce our audience to these concepts that you've developed because I think they are so important for organizations and and how we govern them. So would you mind giving our listeners a brief introduction to this concept? Sure. Um, So I'm a cross-cultural psychologist, um, and what's really interesting about culture is that it's simultaneously both omnipresent, it's all around us, but it tends to be invisible. We take it for granted. And I'm I'm reminded of the story of two fish who are swimming along, and they pass another fish who says, hey, boys, how's the water? And they turn to each other and say, what the heck is water? And it's a really simple story, but it illustrates a profound point, which is that Sometimes the most important reality is the ones that we don't see. And for fish, that's water. But for humans, that's culture. And I've been trying to understand what are the deeper cultural codes that are driving our behavior, trying to move beyond east versus west and north versus south or rich poor. And what I focus on are differences across cultures, really broadly defined, national cultures, states, organizations, even our households, in terms of the strictness with which we apply social norms. So social norms are these unwritten rules for behavior that sometimes get more formalized. And what I found across my work is that all cultures have social norms. In fact, we need them to help predict each other's behavior and to coordinate at an unprecedented level. But some cultures have strict social norms. They're what I call tight cultures that have strict rules and and more serious punishments for deviance. And other groups tend to veer loose. They're more permissive and have weaker norms. And, you know, this construct is something I first started looking at at the national level. In a paper we published in Science some years ago, I was interested in rank ordering countries in general in terms of tight and loose, recognizing that all cultures have tight and loose elements, and also to understand what factors predict variation in tight and loose and and what benefits or liabilities this confers to human groups. And the big picture is that I found that countries like 
that were tight, for example, Singapore, Japan, Austria, Germany, um, were um, countries that um, have a lot of order. And cultures that lean loose, including the U.S. and uh, Brazil, Italy, Spain, New Zealand, uh, are much more permissive. And they have a lot of struggles with order, but they tend to be more open and more tolerant. And actually, one of the most important parts of that paper was trying to understand what differentiates tight and loose cultures in the first place, what factors might have caused the evolution of tight and loose. And, and one thing that I show in that paper is that the degree to which nations have faced a lot of threat, um, whether it's from mother nature, think disasters or uh, famine, or whether it's human-made, like how many times your nation's been invaded over the last hundred years or potentially been invaded by its neighbors, or pathogen outbreaks, population density, these kinds of things that actually, when you think about it, require strict rules to coordinate uh, to survive. And in fact, that's what we found in that paper, that one thing that differentiates tight and loose nations is the degree to which they've experienced those kinds of human or, or natural threats across their history. And I think we'll get more into that in our discussion. I'm really excited to be here. But one thing that I've been looking at in my culture group uh, is how this construct of tight and loose can be used to understand other levels of analysis, like kind of like a fractal pattern. Fractal meaning repeated pattern across levels. And, and that includes, you know, can we understand our 50 states according to Titan Loose? Um, does it follow the same kind of logic in terms of threat as well as order versus openness? Same with our organizations and even our households. So, uh, you know, we can talk about that. And then a question has to do with, you know, which is better under what circumstances? How do we use culture to be more strategic? Um, how do we harness the power of social norms, which we invented as humans? Luckily enough, we did. Um, it's one of our best inventions, actually, um, to use them um, to better our organizations, our, our, our countries, um, and et cetera. So that's kind of the broad picture, um, brief introduction to the concepts. Well, and as I was reading your book and, and listened to some of the things you've done, read some of your other work, the threat and culture seem to be two key themes. And I, you, you had mentioned those just in the introduction. Um, threat is something that organizations face in a competitive environment. So if we think about profit-making businesses, or, or even to some extent nonprofits, there is a competition to do whatever it is that they're doing. And so to uh, some of the guests that I've had on have talked about uh, resiliency and sustainability. And I think those relate to, to the idea of stress uh, and, and threat and facing those. But they've also talked about how organizations can thrive in the long run. And that requires innovation. So one of the things that was interesting to me was to, to think about which elements of tight and loose cultures are better at, say, uh, dealing with threat um, and which are better at spawning innovation. Is there, a, is there a delineation? Is there some way that organizations should look at how they, what their culture is um, to decide whether they're in the spectrum more likely to, to be resilient? Uh, or the one more likely to be innovative? Yeah, this is such an incredibly interesting question. And I think that tight loose can actually, when we use this lens, we can start thinking about organizations in maybe a slightly different way. And we can even diagnose our organizations for where they fall on the spectrum of tight and loose. Where in the organization do we have tightness and where do we have looseness? And, and is it serving the functions that we hope it should? And I'll just mention more broadly that we could see similar types of processes at the organizational level. So we know that organizations vary on tightness and looseness. And, and tight organizations tend to evolve in industries 
that have a lot of coordination and safety needs. You know, think airlines, manufacturing, police. Uh, loose cultures evolve in contexts where there's less threat, there's more mobility, more diversity, two factors that also cause the evolution of looseness. But the more important thing is thinking about how these organizations really vary in their people, in their practices, and in their leadership. Because we know, and I talk about this in one chapter in the book, that the kind of cultural codes that define Titan's organizations really are different. Um, and so, for example, um, in tight organizations, we know that people are more conscientious, more rule-following. Practices are more efficient, standardized, and formal. And actually, tight cultures tend to have more autonomous leaders kind of calling the shots. Uh, whereas in loose cultures, they have very different people practices and leaders. They have people who are more prone to risk-taking, more informality and experimentation, and they have very different leaders. That is that they have more team-oriented leaders that are visionary. And I want to mention that neither is inherently good or bad. Uh, they tend to evolve in very different ecologies, including contexts like that have high degree of accountability and regulations, like think like the law or accounting. Um, loose cultures tend to corner the market in organizations also on openness and on creativity. And tight cultures tend to corner the market on efficiency and, and coordination. Mm. But what's exciting to think about is how these things need to be combined. Because as you mentioned, when you think about something like innovation, and I have data that speak to this that I just presented at Berkeley recently, you know, loose cultures are really good at creativity, but they might not be good at scaling up, at implementation. Whereas tight cultures are not so good at creativity, but they're really good at implementation. And innovation requires both. It requires this kind of ambidexterity of both tight and loose. Um, and uh, we have some data on you know, the fact that you know, you require these, you need leaders that help organizations to manage that process. Um, so that's just kind of one point um, about you know, this issue of we might need to veer tight or loose for good reasons in our organizations, but it is something we can negotiate. And that's also really important when we start thinking about mergers, acquisitions. I think we'll get to that a little bit later. Uh, but again, the first idea is that you have to understand and diagnose, you know, where, is our, where are we strict, where are we permissive, uh, and how might we pivot that as needed. And, and part of this resiliency is not being rigid in that. So I, I have a sense from, again, reading your work that whether we're tight or loose now is a dominant culture within our organization. That's not something we're necessarily locked into, or maybe it's not even good to just be locked into it. So if we face threat, we might move to something that's more tight for a while until we think that that threat has gone away or isn't repeating. Is that some of the experience that you've seen either in political economies or, or business economies that, that organizations that survive can change their, their culture for at least a temporary period of time? Yeah, I think that that's right. I think I see it from a kind of evolutionary point of view that yeah. when there's tightness, we require stricter rules to survive. And so, for example, after COVID, um, we see that you know tightening is really helpful for helping to coordinate this incredible sense of unpredictability and a feeling of uncertainty. I, actually, in, more on the national level, in early March, I wrote an op-ed in the Boston Globe kind of talking about how the U.S. is going to need to tighten up. And, and my concern was, even back then, is that we're going to have a struggle with that. That in my computational models, we see that when there's threat, groups do actually all tighten. It's evolutionarily adaptive. Um, but, you know, my hunch was that it's going to take longer for loose cultures. Here's a gigantic, you know, kind of global pandemic. We can test which nations are doing better. And after I wrote that, um, I started analyzing cases and um, curves and death rates. And 
sure enough, and this is a paper that's under review, we could see that the nations that really were able to fight COVID very effectively were those that had tight norms, but also had really efficient governments that were really coordinating, again, in a pandemic needing that coordination. They were coordinating the private and public sectors to a much greater degree. And the loose cultures with inefficient governments really struggle. Um, and I think we're catching up, and we can kind of get into that. Like, there's lots yeah. of other layers of this, including polarization, that's really hindered the loose context of the U.S. But in general, um, we know that systems do adapt to threat, um, and they, generally speaking, tighten up under threat. What we find that's pretty interesting, and this relates to risk, I think your audience might be interested, is that in our models and other data, we see that as threat subsides, it takes longer for groups to actually loosen. It's kind of an asymmetry in, um, and that's kind of those cultural changes. I think it's probably, uh, again, adaptive in the sense that when we face a lot of threat as humans, that we don't want to loosen too quickly lest we, you know, really um, endanger ourselves. So there is this kind of inertia that happens as groups are trying to loosen after tightening. But it happens. Uh, our models show it, and we see it with data. When you don't have chronic threat, uh, then you can afford to be more permissive. Well, in, in an individual case, the example I've used for people to try and understand that is if you step out onto a street and you almost get hit by a bus, uh, either because you didn't look for it or you weren't expecting a bus, for the next several streets you cross, whether there mm -hmm. have ever been buses on those streets or not, you'll look for a bus. And eventually what you learn is that, well, that bus was a one-off and so I can, again, be a little bit more free in how I cross streets. Um, and organizations that pull together in a pandemic like this seem to me to have a similar mindset to them. But you know, we, we had talked briefly before this conversation about some of the work that Paul Slovak has done. And I, and I remember thinking about this pandemic um, as it started. Pandemics are not unexpected. I mean, I can go back. Michael Osterholm's a, an epidemiologist here in Minnesota where I am. And I found an episode when he was on Oprah, I think back in 2006. And he was describing everything that was going to happen mm -hmm. to us when a pandemic came, not if a pandemic came, when a pandemic came. And what he described is everything that we're going through right now in terms of uh, the restrictions and the impact on businesses, on, on airlines, et cetera. So if you watch that, you know that this is not unexpected. Yet we still have organizations behaving differently in response to it. So we have some who've thought about it in advance, like HEB, and I think hy is another mm -hmm. grocer who, who, who had these pandemic plans. Uh, my guest last week um, had talked about how the World Bank had run through a pandemic plan just last year. Have you seen anything within organizational cultures to give you an indication as to whether one is likely to be thinking forward about these kinds of events to be responsive, or is it something you can only discover after the fact? Yeah, I mean, I think this is such an important question because it really begs the question of why we haven't had these kinds of strategic planning around this, both in the organizational level but also at the, at the national level. And I think, yeah. again, when we've had contexts where we've had haven't had a tremendous amount of threat. I mean, of course, we've had our share of threat, the financial crisis, 9-11. We have had some threat throughout our history, but we've had the luxury of those threats subsiding. Um, for example, after the Boston bombing, I measured people's desired tightness right after the bombing. And luckily, Boston didn't have continuing bombings, so they loosened right. up again. They went back to their attractor in kind of dynamical systems parlance. And so I think that when you have that kind of safety, you don't feel the need to plan. And it's those countries right. and organizations that have had more chronic threat um, that um, are much better able to deal with the threats when they come up. 
Um, of course, we've had a lot of signals that have gotten interrupted here also. I mean, most groups will tighten when they, they realize there's threat, but we've had a lot of, I would so call it a kind of an evolutionary mismatch. You know, we've had leadership that said, no, this is not so important. Um, and so that, again, will kind of interrupt the tightening response. Um, and so I do think that a lot of it has to do with your history of threat. Mm-hmm. And of course, and something I can get to later, I mean, some contexts, you know, I mentioned might take longer to loosen even when they should loosen up. Or there is a sort of Goldilocks idea about tight loose. I have a whole chapter on the book, and it's that kind of, that storybook that's now been translated in many languages of, you know, kind of not too hot, not too cold, uh, not too hard, not too soft. And with respect to tight loose, I think organizations, as I mentioned, need to veer tighter loose for good reasons. But sometimes they might get too extreme. They might get too tight or get too loose. Um, and what my data would suggest is that they start becoming really dysfunctional, that it's not that tight or loose are good or bad. It's the extremes that start causing a lot of problems. And that's where we need to be mindful you know, as managers, as leaders, of how do we sort of diagnose when that's happening. Um, it, the example I give uh, in an op-ed I wrote on one extreme of that is you know, United Airlines when they had their big PR fiasco. Um, This is a place that needs to veer tight, you know, it's an airline, but um, arguably, you know, people were walking on eggshells and were not dissenting and not uh, even, they were just following rules kind of blindly Uh, and they needed to insert some flexibility, some discretion into that system in non-safety domains. It's something I call flexible tightness. Um, On the flip side, some organizations um, should veer loose, a lot of high tech organizations, but Sometimes they uh, get so loose that they have no structure and they're very chaotic and they can't scale up. Places like that were uh, thought to be experiencing that in some parts of their history were like Tesla or Uber. And I call this kind of system one that needs more structured looseness. So we need to insert some structure, some rules, some accountability into that system, even though we want it to be loose. We don't want to kind of take away that advantage from those kind of contexts. But this is something I think requires really strong leadership, what I call ambidextrous leadership when it comes to tight loose, drawing on uh, Tushman's work, on Charles O'Reilly's work, um, that managers, leaders need to understand how to balance tight and loose in organizations. And I'll just mention one more example of this. I'm actually working with the Navy right now, and this is a context where clearly, you know, it should be tight, <laughs> be tight. But what their interest is, is how do they become more flexibly tight? What domains... Right. Can they loosen up? When we analyze an organizational culture in terms of their rules, we can start thinking about which one of these contexts really don't require strictness, whether it's the clothing you wear, the language you use, where you work. You know, there's a way to negotiate this to have a little bit more um, balance in your organizational system with respect to tight loose. You don't think of a large ship at sea as being... Um loose or flexible, uh, able to change quickly, but, but the, the intent maybe or the directional intent uh, is something that can, can be um, injected with some, some innovation. It's an, interesting, it's an interesting idea here because I think, so I had General Charles Jacoby as a guest um, in his last month, uh, mm-hmm. he's been writing about agility and you know, talked about this will to win, this, this unceasing will to win. And, and I think we see this, whether you're a nonprofit or a for-profit board. If you're a nonprofit, your will to win is to serve the mission the best way you possibly can. And, and your mission at, at a for-profit might not be just to uh, maximize shareholder return. There might be something beyond that. So a board is having these discussions that maybe two to five years out in their thinking. And one of the takeaways that I had in, in your research was that it would be pretty helpful 
to have a sense for where our organization is today in terms of tight and loose. And then to match that with what we would perceive as the environment going out two to five years. So let's say I see an environment going out two to five years that is going to lean more towards our wanting to be innovative. We're facing a lot of competition. There are new players in the market, whatever it might be, that we have to keep innovating. That's our emphasis over the next two to five years. So that would suggest to me maybe we need to know if our culture is loose enough. Or we're looking at this environment and saying we've got zero margins. Um, we're facing a highly competitive, I mean, think of the airline industry back a while back. You'd use them as an example. Maybe what we need to be in this environment is very tight. Is there a way for boards to evaluate that within their organizations? Have you, have you guys done research in that area? Yeah, I, you know, I think this is exactly what we think people should be doing is, is really taking this omnipresent invisible force of culture and really trying to diagnose it. And we have measures that we can, we, I can discuss, you know, offline with people that are interested in, in doing this uh, because we can, just like any other strategic kind of assessment in organizations, we can do that with culture. And we particularly need to do that when we're trying to, you know, figure out our strategic advantages in the future. Like you said, do we need to loosen, do we need to tighten? Um, we need to do that when we're merging with other organizations. Right. This is the big cultural iceberg beneath the surface that we know causes a, really a big um, decrement in ROA when we see big differences in tight and loose and mergers. I can talk about that um, as well. Um, but it is something that we can change. Um, I think having the lens and diagnosing it is the first step, um, is to start to think about this strategically and then think about where in the organization would it make sense to loosen. How do we communicate that to people in the organization? Because there's a lot of threats that go from when you're going from tight to loose versus loose to tight that we need to really manage. Um, people who are going from a tight to a loose system really fear the loss of control and chaos. This happens a lot when manufacturing firms are trying to loosen up too quickly. Hmm. Uh, we need to really, and I wrote about this in the book, I've interviewed a whole bunch of companies on this. They, they think, hey, let's just start, hire some, some loose mindset people and just bring them right in. And there's a lot of challenges with that because they really differ on how much they emphasize order and openness um, and deadlines and, and so forth. Um, on the flip side, you know, going from uh, loose to tight also, uh, as needed, also challenges a feeling of freedom, and people really get bent out of shape about that. But they might not once we explain to them why it's needed, and um, and we and we actually involve them in the change. Um, and so there's lots of stories I have in the book around this. It's not one size fits all, but certainly right. measuring it, diagnosing it, and then being strategic about it is really uh, the first steps. Well, and, and you brought up freedom, and, and I think I'd mentioned to you that in the next book I'm working on, I'm talking about freedom and protection from other people's freedom and how important it is for us to feel that we've got that ability to be ourselves. And I think about being ourselves, um, you know, as, as ways that we can innovate, as ways that we can use whatever talents we have, not just as individuals, but as organizations, too. Um, and freedom to me, or protection, let's say, from other people's freedom, is one of those elements of trust. And I see this, um, you know, I'd mentioned to you in some notes uh, talking about some of the work that Eleanor Ostrom had done, that when we've had trust abused, it used to be that we would say you have to put rules in place to make sure that trust isn't abused again. So that, that moves us towards the tight culture. But in Ostrom's work, uh, particularly around commons management, she had looked at ways for there to be self-governance of these commons where the people who are interested in their uh, success had the main uh, responsibility for governing them. And in your book, you talked about how 
and I don't know if we would describe that as a tight culture uh, mm -hmm. in that commons governance or a loose culture, but I think of it as being a little looser because it's got room for innovation. You had talked about in the book how when you have too much looseness, people maybe aren't going to behave in the same way that you would expect them to, with the exception of whether they're being observed. <laughs> and I think, if I'm not mistaken, there was a, a, a story you told about putting a picture of some eyes on the wall of a cafeteria or, or something like that, and people were more likely to pay for their cup of coffee from the, the dispenser than, than not. So I'm wondering here, and again, thinking to how organizations work, if we want to give groups independence, how important is it to have this external transparency and observation in order to make that kind of commons or the, that loose uh, culture managing certain things successful? Yeah, I, it's a really uh, interesting observation. And you know, monitoring, like you described, is a really key element of, of tightness because um, we know that societies that are tight have more police per capita, more, I've actually yeah. measured more security cameras you know, on city streets. Um, they're more religious, so you know God is watching more. We know that that actually also makes people behave themselves. Um, we have some work that just came out recently on tight loose and religion, um, and the, the idea that under threat you want a monitoring God. Actually, that's what we find. Um, but what I think is really remarkable about Ostrom's work, and it comes from a very different space, but I think her system really highlights the importance of ambidexterity and right. Goldilocks. Because I think what she argues is for both tight and loose in that system. Clearly, there is, um, in the sense that having um, voice and people having an equal say, um, is really a very much looseness. It's, a, it's something that says we have to have equal participation so people feel heard. They have that kind of freedom, as you, you put it. But also, what's really remarkable about her system is that it has tightness in it also. It's, it has that accountability that comes from monitoring and sanctions. And without those, these systems, I think, would break down. So in a sense, um, she's sort of striking the balance of, of Goldilocks. I do think, I kind of wish I could have a conversation with Ostrom about this. I know she passed away some years ago. But what, how she thinks threat would kind of shift the balance in this system. Because um, when you have a lot of severe threat, you know, possibly you need to veer tighter, uh, you know, in that system of hers. Um, that might mean uh, a little bit more hierarchical, you know, kind of coordination, even given the collective decision making um, that she argues for. Um, because I think that, you know, these systems are, they need to be designed to deal with uh, whether they have chronic threat. Y you know, I I'll say we just published a paper a couple of days ago uh, where I partnered with some anthropologists looking at tight loose in pre-industrial societies. We found a very similar pattern that, that the groups that had a lot of threat, um, including pathogen outbreaks and, and warfare, uh, veered tighter. Um, and so, um, and they also had more kind of hierarchical leadership in these groups. And that's not to say that they're absolutely necessary, but it just suggests that Ostrom's theory might shift a little bit of its emphasis. Um, for example, I'm not sure graduated sanctions uh, that might need to be a little stricter in context with a lot of threat. Mm -hmm. So it would be really interesting to kind of revisit her theory. Um, but I do think more generally it, it speaks to the Goldilocks of having both freedom but also accountability, which is what really she's arguing for in some of her principles. Yeah, there's, there's a trust that's required and almost a protection uh, from the higher authority, which, which both grants that independence you have to have a trust that that independence isn't then uh, arbitrarily taken away, uh, and that punishment is done by people within the group. So I, I, it's to me, it's a really interesting way to look at this. You've mentioned a couple times this Goldilocks concept, and and I hope 
people when they buy your book um, will get to that so that they get the sense that there isn't one way or the other. Mm-hmm. And Goldilocks, you know, the, the, the porridge that's just the right temperature isn't the same at each organization. And one of the things, you know, this is sort of an abrupt shift in our conversation, but we can't <laughs> ignore it. Um, the pandemic um, is interesting to me in that it has created different groups. So we have political economies that obviously have, um, in most cases, some, some leadership at the national level uh, saying these are things we can do, or we have some where it's pushed out to smaller and smaller groups. Do you find that when we're facing a bigger threat, um, you know, something that, that is like this pandemic, that there's more sorting so that we wind up with people who like rules, mm-hmm going closer to each other or going closer to others who like rules and those who don't like rules like face masks, for example, becoming closer uh, to those who don't want to wear face masks. And that maybe is an unfair question to ask you, but (laughs) is that something that you see? Uh, You know, it's, I think we in the U.S. have a very, very particular issue with, you know, kind of having loose norms where it takes longer to tighten, but also having a lot of political polarization that we don't find in, in a lot of other countries. Um, and so it's a particularly unique din- dynamic that we see right now. I-, I will say that one of the things we found in some of our computational work, I work a lot with evolutionary game theorists. It's really a perfect intellectual marriage because we're interested in how culture evolves and they're interested in how, you know, kind of equilibria evolve based on contextual context. And one thing that we found in a recent study is that as threat increases, we do actually get more ethnocentric, meaning uh, your sort of terms like more tribal, more sorting. but what we find is really an interesting reversal as threat gets really high, that then we start seeing much more um, sort of reduction of ethnocentrism, more coming together. And um, that just rec- means that, you know, at some point tribalism is not useful for dealing with threat in an evolutionary sense. And that's why we, I think we see that as threat really gets more extreme, that people come together. We saw that with 9-11. We saw that with World War II. You know, the U.S. has had its history of having some threats where we have remarkably come together and tightened collectively and unified. So what I think now it, it, what we're seeing is a very, you know, kind of puzzling dynamic. It's um, obviously in part because we have leadership that has modeled uh, and set norms that are about how this may not be very serious and we don't need to really worry about this. And people who are supporting that leader are going to obviously follow that those rules. Um, and in fact, uh, the supporters for Donald Trump uh, lean more conservative. They've lived in tighter states. They follow those, those strong signals. And, and I think what we're seeing now, though, is some reversal of that. As the threat gets closer, as it gets more concrete, less abstract, we're seeing uh, really big shifts in tightness uh, in different states. In Texas, we see local leaders trying to say, hey, it's time to now really pay attention to this. We need to follow the rules. It's mandated to wear masks. Social distance is important, and we need, you know, we'll see that evolving, I think, more and more um, as these contexts are getting um, really extraordinarily threatened. Um, and so I think, you know, it's an evolutionary process that uh, is not, it's a bumpy process. It's an yeah. imperfect process. But I do think we will, we do, generally speaking, see people coming together during collective threat, and it's a puzzling moment in our history because leadership has interrupted that. 
That's interesting to think about it crossing some boundary where it reverts back. You had, and, and we just have a few minutes left, so I won't make you answer this question, but, but mm -hmm. I want to give you a chance to, to wrap up on anything. Um, in your book, you had talked about people who were from different cultures um, that they may have been afraid of because they were different, exchanged stories uh, in diaries, and they became less, less hostile to each other. So I've always thought when we get ourselves polarized, whether it's uh, socioeconomically or politically, we stop learning from the others and we stop understanding, we, stop, uh, we lose our ability to be empathetic. And what I saw in your book was the story of how people in essence gained some empathy because they saw commonalities as they read the stories of others. And I think that's a pretty interesting idea that, that maybe we reach a point where this pandemic is so severe that we do start listening to each other again. Um, and, I, and I hope that's the case, just because I think that's, that's so important. So I mentioned there are just a couple minutes here. Um, and, and I told you before we started recording that I would want to talk to you for hours. <laughs> so I, don't, I haven't even come close to touching my list. But I want to give you a chance. Um, you know, as you think about our audience, board members, senior executives, the people who want to see their organizations be most successful at achieving their goals, is there something you'd like to leave them with? I mean, certainly tell them where they can uh, get more information about your work. But are there any, any important ideas that we haven't covered? I know there, there are many, but say one or two that, that you want them to have uh, before they're done listening here. Sure. And, you know, um, and I, I will mention that paper, uh, the Daily Diary study, just came out in behavioral science and policy. So I, I, it's everything that I published, uh, both op-eds and for the popular press and also the academic context on my website, michellegelfand.com. And, and actually on that website, um, there's a tight, loose mindset quiz that I'd alert your audience to because, you know, understanding culture starts with ourselves. Um, we start to, we have to start with where do we fall on the default of tight, loose mindset. Um, some of us, I, I use the, the metaphor of the Muppets in the book talking about this. Some of us kind of are the order Muppets, like, uh, Kermit the Frog and Bert. You know, we like order, we like structure, we pay attention to rules. Other of us are sort of the chaos muppets. You know, uh, this is basically, you know, like Ernie and an animal. Um, and so, you know, these these types are more likely to not really notice rules, to be more risk taking, to not really be bothered by lack of structure, but perhaps be a little bit impulsive. And the point here is that we all can shift our tight and loose mindset depending on the context. You know, we tighten up in libraries and funerals, which are tight situations, and we loosen up at parties. But each of us has our own default sort of preference in terms of rules. And that this comes from our own histories um, and our own cultures. And and I think it's first important to just diagnose where we fall on this. I'll be I'll be totally open. I fall moderately loose. My lawyer husband veers <laughs> moderately tight, and we have all sorts of conversations on tight loose in our household, including how I, how I load the dishwasher. Um, and, you know, I think it's just helpful to start thinking about why might we, you know, kind of prioritize tight or loose and, and, um, and understand ourselves and then try to empathize with other people, including our colleagues, our spouses, our kids, um, and help to have some empathy for why it might make sense for them to, to have that preference. And then I'm, I'm a person who studies negotiation uh, and teaches negotiation to executives, to, um, to undergraduates. And I think in any negotiation, you need to prioritize what's the most important goal and then trade off on your low priorities. And that's the same thing with tight loose in any context that you know, we might need to veer tight or loose, but we can also negotiate these differences. And I, and I talk a little bit about that in the book, in, in one, one chapter on the tight loose mindset, because it really does cause a lot of clashes 
with one's in-laws, with financial mm. decisions in the household, uh, with you know parenting. You know, we we get married, we have no idea really where we don't think about tight loose when we're marrying someone, but it really affects you know the kinds of ways we um, the decisions that we collectively make. And I, I hope that the lens is useful for people in diagnosing uh, why conflicts might exist and, and how to move forward in a productive way. And on the website, I have a place for people to send in their stories. And I would love to hear from your audience um, about how they see the lens uh, applying to their lives or their organizations and questions they have. That's been the most important thing about writing a book for a general audience. You know, getting out of the ivory tower, wrote this book for my dad. He's an engineer. I wanted to keep it, you know, super scientific. I'm a data-driven person. <laughs> I want data. Um, but, you know, also make it accessible. So I would love to hear the stories you have. A lot of the stories I've heard from uh, around the world has inspired new research, too. So um, I'll be heading out to Stanford Business School next summer. I'm joining the faculty there and building a culture initiative, a global culture initiative. So I hope to be in touch with your audience and have this as really the start of our conversation, bringing culture into into uh, the kind of corporate governance work that you're doing. Yeah, you and I should you and I should follow up on this because I, I can see how we could facilitate some of those conversations, and I know we'd have willing participants. So uh, let's put that on our to-do list. And congratulations on the new role at Stanford. There are going to be some amazing people out there. I know you've worked with a lot of amazing people around the world, but there'll be some amazing people out there. Uh, so I think you're going to enjoy that, and and I know it's a big change, but congratulations yeah. on that. Um, I will Thank put you. a link to your website um, on the podcast. I'll also put a link to your book. The book is called Rule Makers, Rule Breakers. How Tight and Loose Cultures Wire Our World. Um, if you're somebody who enjoys uh, thinking about the human dynamic, which hopefully if you're a board uh, member or a C-suite executive, you're thinking about how people relate to each other in the best ways, uh, I would encourage you to get the book. It's very well written, very insightful. Uh, Michelle, again, I look forward to more conversations between you and I, uh, and thank you so much for your time today. Um, it was great to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me.